Tom Maisky, that is your name. You are not. <laughs> You're back here with me, and we are recording a brand new episode of that Eight Bit Shit Show. Did you know when I, for a long time, a guy I worked with, Tony Mead, who we used to call Pickled Swede, he. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this show. <laughs> oh, he didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, he thought for years that I was called Tony Jetski. <laughs> What because people used to people used to mispronounce my name Tom Majeski. Yeah, yeah. Tony Jetski. He, he thought I was called Tony Jetski, yeah. It sounds like a character off GTA. I wish I was called Tony Jetski, because that's fucking way better. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So uh, and then I got the nickname Turbo. Turbo uh, is that where Turbo came from? Holy yeah, Turbo Jetski. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, that that man. stuck around for quite a while. Yeah, I remember calling you Turbo. Well, not calling you, but knowing you were called it. Yeah, because yeah, there was that, and then there was a guy who's worked with Face 3000, and his mate Cockpiss. <laughs> there were some classic nicknames back in the day. Nice. Well, I, mine was quite boring. I was just Titch. And then... You were Titch, and then you were Sprite, named after the small goblin off the Sprite advert. Thank you for that. <laughs> yes, I was, yeah. But yeah, anyway, enough about nicknames. Let's get on to more Your mum's nickname matters. was Dirty Brenda. <laughs> It fucking wasn't. <laughs> the Brendasaurus. <laughs> oh, not, let's not delve any deeper into Maybe that. it was, but you just didn't know. Oh, imagine that. Imagine you found out your mum's nickname was Dirty Brenda. <laughs> Even, especially like for me, because my mum's not called Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dirty Jan. Ooh. There you go. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get on to more important things. Firstly... What beer are you drinking? It's proper better be job. good. A proper job, Lee. <laughs> what the fuck? Because it is begins that? with P, and so does the game we're talking about. Oh, I like we've my, done that. My, you notice how much effort I put in on the first season. <laughs> yeah, you tried to define on on the Sonic episode. I couldn't find a beer that was related to Sonic, so I just got one and drunk it really fast. <laughs> For the shove on that episode, you got Jemima's pitchfork. Yeah. Man, well, I've got a Doom Bar, which I'm going to crack open right now into the microphone. Oh, hell yeah. So, cool. We've got our beers. We've got everything we need to produce this show. So, let's get cracking and talk about... We're still, we're still in the early doors of season two, aren't we? We're not in the throes of it yet. Yeah, this, I think we're building up. This is, this is Today's episode is going to be quite a lesson, I think, for people. Um, yeah, you were being a bit of a whiny cunt earlier and saying that it was going to be boring. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> a, negative, a negative Nancy, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, and probably un, unjustifiably so. I think it's it's going to be really educational. People are going to dig it because it's going to give them a lot of background to, you know, what where video gaming began. Um, so let's go into it. talking about Pong today. Um, Tom, I'm going to hand over to you to tell us about, you know, where did Pong come from? What 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 was happening at that time? So yeah, this is quite rightly, as you said, Ad, that covering something like Sonic, which we covered last week, is very easy because we can talk about the game and how much we loved it and all this kind of stuff. But as we are building a complete history of video gaming with that 8-bit shit show, there are certain games that are possibly less exciting from a gameplay and our review perspective 
but are so important that you can't ignore them. So you have Pong, you have Space Invaders, you know, things like that that we're going to cover off. Pong is one of the most famous video games of all time. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, like, it's it's up there with your Space Invaders and things like that. Mm. Uh, published and developed by Atari, designed by a man called Alan Alcorn, and uh, came out originally on the arcade, Atari's first arcade game. Uh, 29th of November, 1972. We don't often go back this far into the throes of gaming. This will be one of the earliest games that we cover on this show. And as you will hear soon, the history of this game goes back way, way further than that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so no, go on. Go let's on. just frame this. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a me episode, I guess, isn't it? Because um, I'm a bit nerdy about all this kind of shit. But you're definitely best place. I mean, my gaming like knowledge really starts from the Master System onwards. Like, yeah, you're like a late '80s guy, and I've spent the time going back a little bit. I wasn't really around for this stuff. Well, no, I wasn't around for it. I wasn't even like <laughs> a dirty boner in my dad's pants at this point. <laughs> <laughs> there's a quote for the show show reel at the end of the series yeah there you go um but yeah this is seven years before i i was born um but for context september the magnavox begins selling the magnavox odyssey okay so that was a couple of months before this came out now the magnavox odyssey is important because it's the first home video game console now did you know Ab, that the magnavox odyssey being the first home video game console predated the arcade video games by two months oh did it oh i had no idea no i yeah, thought so cons- console were a thing before arcade games technically holy shit i thought arcades they came way before yeah they weren't popularized arcades were popular but there was a home console the magnavox odyssey which we'll learn all about because mm. it's very important to pong okay um gregory yob <laughs> programmed a game called hunt the wampus <laughs> In BASIC, which is a programming language you probably remember from back in the QBASIC DOS days, Mm. for mainframe computers and an early progenitor of interactive fiction games. And Don Daglow, now he's straight out of Grand Theft Auto, isn't he? (laughs) Yeah, Don Daglow, yeah. Whatever his name was. Um, He programmed Star Trek on a PDP-10 mainframe computer at Pomona College. So, yeah, some proper hard sci-fi shit going down back in the day. If these guys were like um, pioneers and fucking just pure tech, tech. And the, these early games we're talking about really were not games as we'd recognize them today because everything was a new idea. Mm, absolutely. But the release of Pong, so just as a quick summary of what happened here, it really contributed to the first video game war, which was between Magnavox, who are a company that. So I think Atari, everyone knows Atari made video games. Like Atari t-shirts were popularized like again in the 90s, again in the 2000s, again in the 2010s. They keep coming back. They're like so intrinsically linked with nostalgia. But Magnavox were their big rival at the time. And no one fucking knows Magnavox. No, I mean, like before this, before, you know, doing a, a little bit of research for this show, I, I hadn't heard of them. Well, so you have... Atari, Nintendo, and Sega. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're your big. Then you have certain other players like Coleco, um, Neo Geo. Neo Geo, probably the, the next most famous. Yeah. Coleco and Magnavox. So there was a lot of. It was a free for all back then, kind of. Um, and until Atari fucked everything up in 83, which we'll get to when we discuss ET. Oh. Now, 
so this was the first video game. Um, to understand the importance, where Pong came from, because that's what we're really going to look at this show, is where Pong came from, because I think we know where it led. Because yeah. Atari started the arcade on the back of this game. Like, that's a whole other story, what happened afterwards. But what, where we got from nothing up to Pong, that's, you know, the birth of video games. We need to look at three people that directly responsible, the man most directly responsible for Cyber Dynasty Miles Bennett Dyson. <laughs> it's not him, by the way. Just clarifying that. It's actually him. Miles Bennett Dyson. And what happened is, is a woman called Sarah Connor. <laughs> Come with me if you want to live. Sorry. Just imagine they they send back a a T one thousand to shoot Nolan Bushnell <laughs> for creating the Atari that ended the world. Yeah, exactly. Now we need to look at three people. We're going to look at William Higginbotham, mm-hmm. um, who from here on out should be called Billy Higginbottom. Nice. Ralph Bear, who should be called Ralph Beer from now on. And Alan Alcorn, who shall be called Alan Acorn. Yeah, that'll do. Because it's... Okay, but Ralph Beer had essentially nothing to do with Atari's Pong. But you do need to understand all of these people to get the, the legacy, okay? The full picture of it. So Ralph Beer, Ralph Beer, he's known as the father of video games. And he's the creator of the Magnavox Odyssey. So he created the first video game console, so and which predated arcade games. So I guess, yes, he was. But what's interesting is he, you know, there was no such thing as a video game designer at this point. So his approach to video game design, as opposed to the people who were making these electronic games, was saying, look, there's 40 million TVs across America that can only tune into two or three TV stations. They don't really have another purpose. So here's the idea that the cost of hardware could be reduced significantly if you just make something that can plug into an existing TV. What does that sound like to you? Well... Any or any console you currently own. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly what we have today: a PC yeah. consoles, everything. So yeah. he kind of pioneered that idea of utilizing this screen to plug something into. Mm. Which, when you like, how, you can't understate the importance of that. Well, how, like, to to even come up with that idea. So this guy, as you say, there's no background in it whatsoever, and then to think, right, well, there's look at all these TVs that have been shipped into millions of homes. How can I capitalize on that and and make them even better? Uh, Jesus Christ! Like, I, it's it's so impressive for him to have come up with the idea, man. So that's influential, not just in gaming. Just in that's just a technological leap mm. and an idea that has spawned how we use screens now. Absolutely, it's fading out now. Actually, that idea is fading out because we're less and less having to plug stuff in. That everything's coming over the internet. Mm. But you know, for the next. Th- 40 years, that's defined how we've used screens in our living rooms. So Beer escapes Nazi Germany with his family and he was later drafted to fight in World War II for the Americans. He gets transferred to Normandy as an interrogator and he gets really interested in weapons and weapons technology. Claims that weapons were everywhere, mainly bought in North Africa by the British. Uh, becomes interested in history and mechanics. And following the war, he works for a company called Sanders Associates in 1958. Okay, At the time, they made defense electronics. Right, okay. So he joins as a young engineer with a background in television and was hired to build Cold War military technology. And he soon begins work on something they call the Brain Box, which is the prototype for the Magnavox Odyssey. They called it, a much better name, the APB, or also known as the All-Purpose Box. <laughs> that was the name of the first home video game console. I quite like that. 
the APB, the Auckland <laughs> yeah. Box. The aim of the box was to facilitate, and I quote, playing games, studying, buying, and other. Which we later div- discovered, you know, many generations of hardware down the line, that other is porn. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> it, it is really, isn't it? I suppose. I mean, what do we use our machines for now? Playing games, studying, buying, and porn. I sp- yeah, I guess that's valid, yeah. I don't think they envisaged that when they were making it. But... No, but he knew there was another. He just hadn't got his finger on it yet. Uh-huh. So it played seven games, including a Pong-like game called Table Tennis. So straight away we see that Pong existed before Atari made it. And Atari okay. ripped off the idea for Magnavox. Mm. So Beer, or Bear, paints the video game system and he licenses the machine to Magnavox. So he doesn't produce it. Once he's painted it, he licenses it out to Magnavox, and they call it the Odyssey, and they sell 340,000 units, making it Sanders' most successful line for some time. So Sanders are producing it, sorry, for Magnavox. It's obviously wrapped up in the Magnavox branding and sold by Magnavox. Uh, The idea and success inspired Atari's Nolan Bushnell, who went on to create the first arcade machine, which was Pong. Shit, man. That's some deep history right there. So that's one of our three characters that are important to this saga. And people are going to get sick of listening to my voice here, but this is this is actually such a fascinating story. The next guy is a guy called William Higginbotham, or Billy Higginbum. <laughs> He's an American physicist, okay? So we're going even further back now, and you won't believe the links this guy has. When we thought, like, oh, the guy who created the APB became the first video game console, was, was and he invented plugging things into a TV. You wait till you hear what this guy invented. So he's an American physicist. He's the head of instrumentation division at the Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York. And the lab focuses on researching, and I quote, peaceful uses of atomic power. And Higginbotham worked there from 1947 onwards. Prior to working there, Higginbotham worked at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And he headed up, here we go, the lab's electronic group. In the later parts of the war, his team developed the electronics for the first atomic bomb as part of the Manhattan Project. Fucking hell. Okay. okay. Higginbotham later becomes a prominent figure in the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons movement. So after he kills thousands of people, um, he goes, ooh, that was bad. <laughs> so he goes to work at this institute that's a, it's a non-proliferation of nuclear movement. He notably has very little interest in video games and actually doesn't like the fact that he's remembered for them. He's actually referred to as the godfather of video games. Right. Uh, And he doesn't want to be remembered for them. He wants to be remembered for his work in the non-proliferation of nuclear armaments. So how was he involved in gaming? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Every year, the Brookhaven National Laboratory held a three-day public exhibition. One day would be open for high school students, one day for college students, and one day for the general public. The exhibition was largely tours and static displays with some attempts at action. But, you know, make science fun. Mm. Uh, Higginass observed a lack of interest by these visitors. So in 1958, so all the way back to 1958 now, he decides to make an interactive exhibition. So whilst reading the instruction manual for one of Brookhaven's computers, this was a Donner, not a kebab, a Donner Model 30 analog computer. He learns that the computer could calculate ballistic missile trajectories of a bouncing ball with wind resistances. So he decides to use it to form the foundation of a game. Higginbotham claimed that he thought it, it might liven the place up a bit to have a game people could play to convey the message that our scientific endeavours have relevance to society. The game uses the display from an oscilloscope, and if you look in the dock, I put a little image of this, to display a game of tennis viewed from the side. 
The computer calculated the path of the ball and factored in wind resistance as players use these custom aluminium controllers, not too dissimilar from the Atari Pong controllers, to control the angle of the shot. The game is designed in a matter of hours and built over three weeks, and the circuitry, not including the controllers in the oscilloscope screen, took up the size of a microwave. Bloody hell. Okay. The exhibition's a huge success. Hundreds of people lining up to play, most popular amongst some high school gamers, uh, and then the next year, it was updated to a bigger display in 1959 and officially taught computer tennis, although Hagenbotham always refers to it as tennis for two. <laughs> Following the 1959 exhibition, the components are dismantled and put to other uses, and the game is largely forgotten about until the late 70s and early 80s. So, boom, there you go. Someone invented a version of Pong in 1958, the first video game on record. It looks... I mean, you can tell it's tennis. Like if It's like a sort of a blue line with a sort of vertical blue line in the middle of it, obviously representing the net. You've got like a blue ball with it. It's got a trajectory path behind it as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, consi- it looks pretty good considering, you know, there was nothing that precedented this. So um, this is the first people argue that games were invented before this. This is commonly regarded as the first video game mm. in history. So when people say Pong is the first video game in history, what they mean is the 1972 arcade cabinet. Right. But what becomes really interesting is that ripped off two other versions of the game. I didn't rip it off because, I mean, are you really ripping stuff off at this point? We'll talk about that shortly. But it's really fascinating to see that this was about in the 50s, but then disappeared for 20 or 25 years and came back out. So, but you can see that the, the dude who made this, he's become so famous for that. And he's like, can people not like you know, be more happy about my nuclear disarmament program than my stupid <laughs> fucking table tennis game. <laughs> no, we just like your table tennis game, mate. <laughs> yeah. So there's one other person that fits into this story really well. And people would expect I'm going to say Nolan Bushnell, and he kind of does. But so Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney formed a partnership called Syzygy. Syzygy Energy and Engineering in 1971. And they create the first arcade game as well as the first commercially available video game. And it's called computer space so okay pong is technically the second arcade game but it never proliferates the first one and it's derivative of the 1962 game space war except what's important to know is that space war has an exclamation mark on the end so it's actually space war (laughs) you have to shout it Hmm. okay and that features a rocket controlled by a player engaged in a missile battle with a pair of hardware controlled flying saucers set against the starfield background Man, there's a lot of reading on this one, but this is all important stuff. It's, it's a lot of information here. It's all interesting shit, man. Seeing the success of the Odyssey, though, Nolan Bushnell's, everyone knows him because he invented the Atari. And he's like one of the most beloved dudes in all of gaming history. Um, and this kind of looks at a little bit of where his success came from and did he borrow some ideas of people. Mm. So seeing the success of the Odyssey, Bushnell, the then founder of Atari commissioned his former co-worker Alan Alcorn, or Alan Acorn, to program the first Atari arcade game and the second commercial arcade game. So I was slightly incorrect. It's the second commercial arcade game. It's the first Atari arcade game, and it's the most successful. Yeah. And this was to be based on table tennis, featured on Odyssey, which was, of course, possibly based on what we saw earlier. Nolan actually lies to Alcorn and tells him that they have a contract to produce these with General Electric to give him legitimacy to the project. Uh, there's a couple of things that happen that are interesting in the development, like Bushnell wants cheers and boos to react to the player's performance, and Alcorn goes, we already have way too many chips in this thing. I watched a video of this, actually, and 
it was there was so many chips inside on that on that board. It was like, yeah, he really did not have any room to to add in any anything else. So that's a fair comment. Yeah, it's crazy. So it took him just three days to get this working. Um, the one big change here, Ad, and this is something I'm interested to talk to you about, is it, the change that Pong made. And to me, this is has to like I'm I'm taking a lot of credit away from Atari, Al Alcorn, and Bushnell for copying a game that basically I'm being a bit unfair because anyone could come up with that game. Really. It's a logical starting point. They added a feature where depending on what area of the paddle, the ball hit would change the traje- trajectory, the rebound trajectory of the ball. Mm. Now you think about games like Arkanoid and brick breaker games, which are hugely fun and then take that away and just think actually what, an, what an innovation that was for the genre of a paddle based ball slinger. Well, it changes the dynamic of the game completely, doesn't it? So what makes it like, 10 times better yeah yeah absolutely adds a bit of um well it, unpredictability to it almost unpredictability or skill well I, I guess yeah i guess once you learn the game you can predict it but i, I mean like it, it yeah it adds that extra it angle makes it more like tennis as well mm, yeah true obviously depending yeah. on how you hit the ball yeah so they did do that, and that's a huge innovation in gaming. Right? You're really starting to think about gameplay mechanics at this point. Mm. And it's weird to say that that's such a big innovation, but it really was. So in 72, Bushnell installs this prototype in a bar called Andy Capp's Tavern. Now, if you Google Andy Capp's Tavern, this is what it's famous for. I th- you know, It's the Pong bar, the, the bar that video games started in. Mm. The popularity of the game itself proves over the first couple of weeks, Bushnell goes away on a business trip to present the game to Bally and to Midway. Names that we both know. Midway's still in video games. Yes. Okay. A few days later, the um, Pong prototype starts malfunctioning, and upon inspection, it's due to overflowing coins. So at this point, Bushnell goes, actually, I think we want to manufacture this rather than license it. Okay. Uh, Bally and Midway are already interested, so what he decides to do is play them off against each other and tell him the other one is not interested. Mm-hmm. And uh, the groups then subsequently decide to decline his offer because they think, well, if... You know, Bally are like, if Midway aren't interested, they must know something. Or, uh, it loses confidence in it all, and they fuck off. But then Bushnell gets difficulty finding financial backing for Pong. Due, to, interestingly, to its close relationship to Pinball and the links of Pinball to the Mafia. Holy shit, what? <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, well, apparently a lot of Pinball machines were run by the Mafia. Well, I, I, okay. Fair enough. I had no idea you about go that. You in, you pull the ball, and they're like, hey, <laughs> hey. you're talking to me, you're talking to me. You guys get on on my shop. Anyway, shit impressions so aside, I did not Atari know that. Gets, yeah, Atari gets a line of credit from Wells Fargo and creates an in-house assembly line, releasing the game on 29th of November 1972. By 1973, they start shipping machines to other countries. Now, there is another big chunk of information to go into shortly, but what do you think of all that? So there, I mean, so there's a lot of stuff here saying, oh, one copied the other, but each one had its own different spin on it and it had different sort of levels of innovation um but i don't think you can say that atari really ripped them off because you know as you said it, it, it was a logical starting point for them to 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 come up with a game like that that was relatively simple but also had new ideas so it's got an interesting it's almost like you could say if someone came up with a podcast name that was exactly the same as one of yours but it was quite a simple name did they rip you off or not oh <laughs> dig <laughs> <laughs> who knows <laughs> we won't go into that story right here right now but watch this space on that 
Yeah, man. I think we're, it's the, under, we're the underdogs. We'll be fucked. <laughs> yeah, I don't really want to start a thing with them, but that's fine. Um, yeah, Christ. So I feel like I've had a bit of an education there, Tom. This is almost a fact-heavy um, episode. Now, we do like to steer away from just... Well, I didn't just read this off. I typed it all fucking up. I've been done a whole load of research on this. But I think this is one of the ones that explains the origins of so much that this is more of a kind of I talk, you listen history lesson. It is. And this is the foundation of our show, really. Um, because what we're aiming to do here on That A Bishop Show is talk about the history of video games. And I mean, this is the logical place to sort of, um, well, not start, but it's a, it's a logical step in, in covering that history. Um, it's absolutely fascinating, honestly. Like, you look at the people, the guy who invented the first video game pretty much also developed the electronics for the atomic bomb. <laughs> Which is insane. Absolutely insane. And then realized what a fucking terrible <laughs> mistake he'd made. But, yeah. Wow. Well, I would love to hear his thoughts on just that. Why? Like, he obviously had some guttural reaction. Did he know, really, that what he was doing was going to be used? That it wasn't just going to be a threat? who knows i mean could he really even predict the power of it either like well, who knows yeah because he would know he's just guiding a missile of a certain weight that needs to do a certain job uh-huh. but like did people who worked on these things think that they were ever going to be dropped on a city of civilians I, you'd like to think not as quite fucking sadistic if they did but yeah. like then well, he obviously say, he, he moved to a non-proliferation association after that yeah you'd think he was uh pretty so much he's done what he could to redeem himself but yeah 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 but anyway, but man, so, serious stuff. But so, who do you th- let, let's just go on the Magnavox, the inevitable lawsuit between Magnavox and Atari? Because what happens next is Atari obviously make fucking loads of money. Mm-hmm. Like this sets Atari on the path to become the video game company globally. Yeah, for the next three years, over the next the next five years, from 1978 to 1983, Atari absolutely dominate. Everything okay. Yeah, yeah. In video games. Um, until basically they, we'll, we'll talk about the 1983 video game crash another time, um, which then is, re- the, the um, industry is resuscitated by Nintendo around 1985 with the release of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's a great, interesting story too. That period in time is so, so huge for video games in terms of what happened there because there's the effects of that is still felt today. Yeah, uh, and it's also defined who Nintendo was as a company and their their ethos and things. But there was an inevitable lawsuit between Magnavox and and Atari because Magnavox went, "Hey, we we want a bit of that. You've nicked our idea." And when you look at them, pretty close visually and everything, but then wasn't everything at that point? So, what do you think about it? before we go into the details of the lawsuit? You alluded to the fact you think really they they didn't have a grounds to sue Atari. I don't think they did. I mean, you can't just... So, for example, so someone makes an open-world RPG game and then somebody copies it. Like, whoever made the first open-world RPG game... I mean, I I couldn't even think now what the first one was off the top of my head, but, like, then somebody goes and copies that and makes it slightly different with different mechanics. It's not... Your first open-world RPG games were technically not open-world, but you're talking, like, text adventures at this point. Yeah, so then somebody takes that idea and create something with slightly different mechanics works slightly differently but essentially is the same type of game it's not you're not going to have a lawsuit on the foundation of that um unless you it's hard isn't it because this the pong game essentially looks like table tennis identical almost there's one improved feature yeah that is that that there's an angle of rebound added to their game 
Well, unless they got some kind of patent on that, like how that actually actually all works. Well, they have then. the paint. Yeah, they have the patent on the all-purpose box, which includes yeah. seven built-in games. In that case, they've got really no grounds, have they? Surely, I don't know. I've not. I don't know what the outcome of the lawsuit was. But so, okay, let's let's just have a little look at what happened here. So, the presentation of Pong, as well as many cl- now, the other thing that was really proliferated in the late seventies and early eighties is clones, because making video games was a fucking free for all, and we didn't have IP in the way we know IP now until Super Mario Brothers and Donkey Kong and p- things like that started to come along. Mm. We had ideas. Okay, and there was just clones and clones and clones of these ideas, Space Invaders clones, Pong clones, all sorts of things like that. So the presentation of Pong, as well as many of these clones, are almost identical to that of table tennis on the Magnavox Odyssey. Now, that is obviously to some level down to the limited hardware performance. As Beer or Bear had patented the system, which had table tennis built in, so he's arguing that subsequently he had patented the game as well. In 1974, Magnavox sued Atari, as well as many other companies that had made similar games, for patent infringement. There's been much speculation here, this is interesting, that Magnavox waited until 1974. So if we go back a bit, in 1972 they launch it, 1973 they ship machines to other countries. By that point, we're well aware of the success. Magnavox possibly waited until 1974 so that it would be a more profitable court case Hmm. once Atari had achieved success. That's interesting. That's like, yeah. Okay, it's quite clever. At this point, the defense lawyers for Atari uncover Higginbotham's work on Tennis for Two back in 1958. And they try to have the Tennis for Two concept listed as what's known as prior art, which is something that you can use as inspiration, but it doesn't necessarily have a a copyright stake. It says that Magnavox and... Atari both used the same prior art as inspiration for their games and came to thus the same conclusion. But their claim was unsuccessful, so Atari believed they could win in court, but they couldn't afford the litigation costs, so settled and licensed the rights from Magnavox so they could continue to produce Pong. So eventually, Atari is producing Pong under license from Magnavox. So sales of the Magnavox spiked due to the popularity of Pong as people wanted to pay the famous arcade game at home. So now, Atari having to license the game for the arcade off Magnavox, and Magnavox is selling the only home console version. However, Magnavox still continues aggressive litigation and eventually makes three times as much money just from lawsuits as actually from the production of the console. Jesus Christ. Wow, okay. Well, I think that point you made about them waiting until 1974, till Atari had got a little bit of success with their console, with with their uh, arcade box. It's incredibly smart. Yeah, it's very, very clever. Because obviously, if if it had bombed, they wouldn't have given a shit, would they? Um, So, yeah. To know that Magnavox basically rode on the coattails of of Atari's success, that's really interesting. Because did they do anything after this, Magnavox, in terms of consoles? You know? Um, They dabbled. So, I think there was an Odyssey 2. So, yeah, as as I said... Yeah, they did the Magnavox Odyssey 2. Uh, also known as a Philips Odyssey 2 so they must have partnered up with them mm. we'll get onto some games from the, those we will we'll have to look at some Magnavox games some Coleco games and and you know um, Amiga yeah uh, different things like that the, the Commodore 64 we will go through some of the important games in their libraries but really to look at what's important with this game is looking at the console history that's why you know we're not 
it's a difficult when you go about this far to say we we did Sonic last week and like Sonic was such a massive thing culturally for for Sega for everything. It's really easy to talk about the game. What we're doing now is we're talking about games as a vessel to discuss the industry, the business, the um the console launch and all that kind of stuff around it. Yeah. So we it's... will dive dive into a few games from every console over this this show. I'm sure. We normally talk about what was going on in gaming at that time, but really, this you know, gaming was being invented at this time, so it's a completely yeah. different kettle of fish. Yeah, as a commercial entity, gaming was being invented at this time. Mm-hmm. So, Ad, maybe you can cover the next section we've got on our. Yeah, I so this what we want to talk about next is the gameplay, and uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, we've got about two lines to talk to you about here because, <laughs> like, okay, so. For the three people in the world that haven't played Pong, um, it's a two-player game where each player controls the paddle on opposite sides of the screen to direct a ball back and forth like a game of ping pong. Um, You accumulate a score by not missing the ball or alternatively score a point by making your opponent miss. Um, And as you said earlier, the paddles, depending on where you hit the ball, will direct the ball slightly differently and it'll bounce off the corners or the edges of the screen to make it harder for your opponent to... uh, to return the ball, so it's like a game of tennis. What's, what's of interesting pong. about the gameplay to me, Ad, is game video game controllers at home. I mean, arcade games had their own. Every game had a bespoke control mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. back in the day, but this extended to at home, where you know, arcade, um, sorry, console controllers. You quite often got like you get one that looked like a telephone with a, a dial, so you could control a paddle that replicated what was done in the arcade and stuff like that. So games were played in such a very different way back then and it wasn't uncommon to have you know a controller that was specifically designed for the games you were playing yeah like you, you got like the the street fighter controller for example where everyone you know had like had a version of that when uh on the uh snares and stuff like that so um if you look at like the coleco ad which came with what looked like essentially a telephone a modern telephone with a, a digital number pad of nine numbers mm. but then each game would come with a like an acetate overlay that you put on it that then told you what each button did. That's pretty damn cool, actually. So yeah. when you're playing it, you put the correct overlay onto the controller and then you've got the custom controller for the game. Yeah, yeah. But there was all these wacky ideas coming out because there was no rules. You just do what you wanted and, yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. now you've got to have the dual analog sticks, you've got to have the D-pad, you've got to have the four face buttons and the the, the four triggers. And the only thing is people are saying, should the, the you know, should the sticks be offset or aligned? That's literally the difference between mm. the, the current-gen console configurations. Yeah. As soon as the analog sticks were brought in, that's almost become what is needed now for, for any, you know, FPSs, things like that. You couldn't play them without it. So, yeah, man. Um, but I like... Uh, I guess, do you ever play that, um, like, air hockey game in, uh, like, the arcades and stuff? Like the, Yeah, yeah, the, t- the table air hockey. And there is something, like, undeniably fun about just going head-to-head against someone else on exactly. a concept. Yeah, exactly. If you've got a friend to play this with, it's 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 always going to be fun. It's, it's timeless, isn't it? This sort of thing. Cause it's... I mean, notably, we didn't do an unplugged episode for this show. Well, there's a good reason for that. I mean, I don't think you can do that for longer than five minutes, and... It's it's pong. Everyone everyone's seen pong. Everyone knows what it looks like and and how it plays. So. Well, I just think you're better probably just getting a YouTube video up, exactly, and watching it. Yeah, because yeah. this this is the first time we decided not to bother doing um an unplugged. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, uh, I think, for this episode. There's a good reason for that. But yeah, man. So that's really it about the gameplay. So we want to move on to talk about the reception of pong and what it left us um, as a legacy in uh, in gaming. 
So, Tom, I'm going to hand over back to you again to talk about this. Uh, yeah, I, okay. I guess so. I mean, where do you start with the legacy of Pong? I mean, the first commercially successful arcade game. So it proves the concept that people want to go out and put quarters into arcade games and play video games against their mates in bars. Like, is there a more influential thing ever, ever in the history of video games? Ever? I don't know. Like, as a step, I mean, you've got Space Invaders, which is arguably was more popular, but this is the first that really did it. Um, well, this, it's almost pretty. It's also concept. a video game. If you if we're counting not just Pong but table tennis as well, it's the first real video game that was popular in people's homes. Atari released several sequels that had new features and features. The machine was estimated to earn thirty-five to forty dollars a day. Okay. Now, for context, that was around four times the average coin-operated entertainment machine. Jesus. Atari sold the machines at three times the cost of production, and by 1984, had filled over 8,000 orders. The arcade cabinets have since become collector's items, with the cocktail version table, the cocktail table version becoming the rarest. Home Pong was an instant success in 1975, selling around 150,000 units that holiday season, though by this point, many, many companies were making clones of the game. So and this all leads into the 1983 video game crash. Coleco entered the market with a Telstar console that features three versions of Pong. Holy shit. Okay. Nintendo entered with the Color TV Game 6. <laughs> That's I think a catchy the name. Was a, a simpler game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In 1977, which features six versions, and the Color TV Game 15 in 1978, which features, you guessed it. How many versions? 15 versions. 15 <laughs> oh, versions. yes. I mean, Nintendo so, have got this habit of naming things just in numerical order, like their development teams. is like... Yeah, R&D 1. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, man. Um, many publications and journalists do see Pong as the game that launched the video game industry. So no one's saying it's the first game. But they're like, this is the point where it went, games are a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually after seeing the success of Pong that Konami entered video game market with their first game, Maze. Yeah, man, I've never, never seen or played maze but um yeah but we'll have to do that i mean we've got to cover things like konami's first game that's fucking huge yeah imagine konami never existed and all the good games we would never have had so well, they do exist but they just like kept making pachinko machines which are basically what they do now <laughs> yeah without hideo kojima yeah um yeah and pong basically has been in so many exhibitions around the world including the venice biennale which i've been to Oh, have you? Okay. I went to the Venice Architecture Biennale. It wrote, alternates between the art and the architecture one. It's a architect. culturally significant piece of artwork. And I think that just says a lot, doesn't it? The fact that it's featured in that, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's strange because normally when we do these review roundups and things, it's, it's more of like these uh, journalists that have written about the game and talked about, you know, their time with it and what they think of it. But this is more this is universally renowned as being the, the game that kickstarted it all. Um, and that's really interesting because it's it's com- a complete departure from where we usually end up at this point. If you ask Dirty Jan or Dirty Brenda, do you know Pong? They're going to be like, yep. <laughs> yeah, I know Pong, love. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> now. I know ping pong balls. <laughs> oh. uh, I'd honestly Brenda's ping pong ball trick. <laughs> yeah, nor do I. Okay. <laughs> Tom. <laughs> I mean, what are we doing? Are we leaving it at this? Because that's, I mean, this this was, we knew this was, we talked about this beforehand. This is an information-heavy episode. A bit of a lecture, really. It's an, yeah, it, it's it's something for people who want to find out and understand about where gaming came from. And I think, 
it had to be that way. Um, there was Next any week other we're way talking to... about Command and Conquer, so there'll be lots of silly Russian accents. and Exactly. We'll be resuming normal service. Yeah, yeah. But no, Tom, that's been but good. I, just, I think the story's so... I would say it again, the story's just so fascinating behind this. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to it, and it's um, it's one that, as a as a gamer, as someone with any interest in gaming, retro gaming, anything like that, you should know. Um, so, you know, I feel like I've had the education, as I said. And we've scratched the surface, really, of what, like... We just got. We went from 1958 to Pong, really. Yeah. I, 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 ignoring everyone outside of Magnavox and Atari. Obviously, and as William, a William Higgin Bowden, <laughs> Higgin Arse. But um, <laughs> yeah. Tom, I thank you for that. Arsed. And uh, cool. Well, what I will say then is check out uh, all of our other content over at HappyHourGaming.net, where you can catch uh, our six other shows. Um, so we've got a lot of YouTube content that we've been making. Um, so yeah guys head over there and check that out come and chat to us uh, on Twitter at Happy Gaming Hour and join our Discord um, the link for that is on the website and just come no, and get we involved have a, t- a Twitter account for the 8-Bit Shit Show now oh of course we do yeah we've recently just set that up so um, yeah tweet us at that 8-Bit Shit Show um, and, and buy us a beer on Patreon man if you do that you can suggest a game for us to look at for a series so you know what more do you we want? do need one beer each for each show yeah, so, you know... That's why we keep making more shows. Exactly. So we can drink more beer. So if you guys buy us a beer... <laughs> it's the main aim. <laughs> uh, wicked. Thanks, Tom. That's been a great episode, and uh, we will catch you again for that 8-Bit Shit Show. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, man.